Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Recorded live at the Slaughtered Lamb is music journalism in a critical condition with music journalists Andrew Muller, Charles Shaw Murray, Jude Rogers and David Stubbs. Welcome to this week's show, which is a live recording of a panel discussion about the future of music journalism, which took place at the Slaughtered Lamb pub in Clerkenwell on the 10th of February and was part of Resonance FM's ongoing fundraising week. There's still plenty of ways to give money. Go to resonancefm.com where you'll find lots of ways to donate. Everybody's quiet and down, then things are going to happen. Well, thank you very much for coming, everybody. This is um, a fundraiser, as you know, for Resonance FM. Over in the corner there, you can buy T-shirts and badges and Oyster card holders with the Resonance logo on them if you you want to do that after we've finished. I'm Neil Denny. I do a a radio show on Resonance called Little Atoms. And, well, actually, I'll, I'll introduce the panel first, and then I just want to briefly say what inspired this panel and why and why I've decided to do it. So... Let's see, what order were we in? So I'll start from the left, from my left, and work this way. So on the far side is Charles Shaw Murray, who is an author, broadcaster, and a former enemy journalist. He is the author of several books, most recently Crosstown Traffic, Jimi Hendrix, and Postwar Pop. He was a founding contributor to Q and Mojo magazines, and he made his print debut in 1970 in the notorious school kids issue of Oz. Currently, he's a regular contributor to Madame Meow's Culture Lounge on Resonance FM. On my immediate left is Andrew Muller, who is a rock critic, travel writer, foreign correspondent, columnist, pundit and author. He's a contributing editor at Monocle and also writes for The Guardian, The Telegraph, Uncut and The New Humanist, among others. His latest book is the memoir It's Too Late to Die Young Now. When not writing, he can be found singing and songwriting and playing guitar for the alt country band The Blazing Zoos. And defunct music papers that he's written for in the past include Melody Maker, Vox, and The Word. Did you ever write for Select? I forgot to ask. <laughs> I don't think I ever wrote for The Word. Oh, it's that, the Word is definitely on your, on your thing. No, it's it can't be. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I like, I'm pretty sure I didn't write for Select. Do you get allowed no, on ships? On, on my immediate right? are not on your conscience. Right. Settle down. <laughs> <laughs> David Stubbs joined the music magazine Melody Maker in 1986, where he worked for 12 years. His most famous creation, Mr Agreeable, has recently resurfaced at the Quietus. 
He's also written for The Guardian, The Enemy, The Wire, When Saturday Comes, and Uncut. And he was a presenter. Another fact I should have checked. Is it still going? He was a presenter of Resonance FM's football show, Cafe Calcio. Is yep, it still, still going? going. It yeah. is still going. So he is a presenter of Resonance FM's football show, Cafe Calcio. David is the author of numerous books, including the upcoming Future Days, which is a history of kraut rock, and is published by Faber in August. And finally, on the far end at the right is Jude Rogers, who is a columnist and a music writer for The Guardian, The Observer, The Quieters and New Statesman. She's the co-founder of the quarterly magazine Smoke, A London Peculiar, and she's been on the Mercury Music Prize judging panel since 2007. Her radio documentary, Mad About the Boy, was on Radio 4 at the beginning of February, and I think it's probably still on iPlayer, is it, too? I think it's just gone off. Actually. Okay, fair enough, forget that. We I'm sure you can find it online somewhere. I'll send you an <laughs> And, um, yeah, I wanted to just say a brief word about why... You've seen the description of this panel, no doubt, by when you bought the tickets, but the idea came from reading the book of Andrews that I, I just mentioned, It's Too Late to Die Young Now, and... Published in the UK in May. Yeah, I was going to say, it's shamelessly still unpublished in, in the UK, but apparently it is coming out in May. It's a story that basically parallels the exact time of my life when I was reading music journalism in my, in, in my early teens and into my, into my late 20s. And it's a period of time when, I can remember, it seems like crazy now, but there was four weekly papers that you could buy that were about music at the time that I started buying music. And, and the theme of Andrew's book that goes right through the book, is basically about the demise of that world and, and the gradual dying off of, of the music press. And when I say that, you'll all think, well, there's, you know, there's lots of music magazines out there and there's the internet and everything. So, first of all, what I, wanted, I want to start by just getting Andrew to sum up that argument that basically the music press, as it was, has died out. And then I'm going to ask everybody else just, to, just their, you know, what their take on that is, first of all, and then we'll get into, we'll get into it. So, Andrew... I think you've pretty much summed it up there quite well in that it, it, it did used to exist and now it doesn't. And the reasons are not, they're not terribly difficult to discern. Um, the, the weekly music papers got... They, they were the kind of canaries in the coal mine, I guess. They were the first to get crowded out uh, by the internet when once people... I, I think as a general rule that the internet has proved that convenience and price will trump all other considerations. And if people think they can get if not the actual thing for free, then at least a serviceable facsimile of it for free, then they'll take that rather than paying for the thing they have to walk to the end of the street mm -hmm. uh, to buy. But it, has, it, it, it is a, a huge seismic shift, especially for those of us who grew up in that period and can't quite imagine growing up without the influence of those magazines, because even if I'd never written the word for Melody Maker, it still would have been a, an extremely important and transformative thing in my life. So, like I said, I want to get everyone else's take on this argument because there were, there's lots of arguments against those magazines. They were, you know, they were basically about why indie rock. They would make every now and then a, an effort to, to cover other types of music, but you know, often in a very perfunctory way. And the world was, it seems, quite notoriously hostile. There was you know, a perfunctory amount of women journalists that worked for them. So I basically want to ask everybody else on the panel, first of all, if if they recognise that argument, basically. So if I could start... Well, I'll start with Charles, actually, because let's just, let's just widen this out, Charles. Is this 
also this idea of this being like a sort of golden age. You were writing at, a, at, a, at an earlier generation, right? We can look at music journalism as, you know, your generation and, you know, Nick Kent and, and people like that. And then there's the, you know, the Judy Burchill, Tony Parsons generation. And then there's like Andrew and David and then on, on to Jude's. So would you have looked at the generation of Andrew and David coming afterwards as being the golden age was over when these guys were writing? No, I mean, I would love to be able to spin out a fable that there was a golden age of British rock journalism because a race of giants walked the earth. Um, Unfortunately, uh, it's not because my generation were necessarily, you know, better in any quantifiable way than the generations that came after. But the circumstances, there was a perfect storm scenario which was essentially that there was a drought of access to the music and the musicians unless you were one of the cool 400 in one in two or three cities and you get, went to lots of gigs and you clubbed a lot it's like where were you going to get access to the music that music was only presented in little ghetto slots on radio and tv the mainstream national press really only paid attention to popular music when they could get people indignant about it or make them laugh at it or some phenomenon like the Beatles or the Stones got absolutely too big to ignore. The music press of the 1970s had the power and scope that it did because... For the artists to communicate with their audiences through any method other than live shows and the content of their records, they had to use us. And at the same time, the music was changing. (coughs) There were a new bunch of journalists who, through the 60s, through growing up as kids in the 60s, if not necessarily big players in, say, the London Underground, were making the connections between you know, what was going on in the music and what was going on in fine art, what was going on in photography, what was going on in fashion, what was going on in film, what was going on in music, what was going on in literature. So a new kind of criticism was looking for an outlet, and the outlet it found was a weekly music press that was in a position that it hadn't been in before and would never be in again. And I'm only glad that I got to be one of the people who came along at just the right time with the right sensibility and was able to exploit the fuck out of it in every conceivable way that didn't actually involve making money. I was the guy who'd been... I've been there done that, got the T-shirt, but I gave the damn T-shirt away rather than, <laughs> rather than keep it in layers of plastic and sell it to the V&A 30 years later. <laughs> mm. David, what was, what was different about the weeklies then? Because as I said, there was plenty of monthly magazines, and some of them, you mm. know, Select and Box, etc., are also defunct, but they still exist. Kerrang! Mm. and... No, the word's gone, hasn't it? What's the other one? Uncut is, is the other one, and Mixmag and, and, and things that often cover other types of music. Mm. So what, what did the weeklies do that a monthly title, like, say, Q, for instance, wasn't yeah. doing? Well, first, uh, you know, I'd echo what Charles was saying about you know, the idea that um, you know, this idea of a race of giants, that, like, writers are simply better back then and kids are rubbish these days and music's rubbish these days. I don't believe any of that for one moment. It is all to do, as Charles said, about circumstances. However, in terms of the weekly music press, what 
Charles actually and his generation did come along was they kind of, as he's kind of implied, invented a language, a distinct language of the music press that was appropriate to the kind of counterculture that the music represented. And in a sense, the music press lagged behind the music. And a classic example of this is in 1967, um, the enemy reviewed Sergeant Pepper, and you really thought they might, the enemy, Sergeant Pepper, you thought they'd rise to the occasion. And the last paragraph of that review, I had to go and look in the archives and read it one time, it read something like, and in conclusion, uh, the Beatles have furnished us with an album that not only gets your toes tapping, but makes you think a little bit as well. <laughs> that is how music was written about up to a certain point, and it was lagging behind. So there was basically the important thing about institutions, and it was, you know, it had to be the, 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 the weekly music press, really. The monthlies kind of came later when the whole thing was becoming slightly kind of museumy and codified and retro. But it was about creating an appropriate language, um, a stance, you know, in terms of... that was almost part of the spy in some ways, to be part of the sort of creative process of rock music itself in a funny kind of way. We, you know, there was a place where up-and-coming musicians would kind of... Re- they would understand what they were kind of buying or sort of into. They would understand what they were possibly con- eventually contributing um, towards by looking at the kind of... the way in which the music was written about, the attitude that was kind of presented by the writers. This isn't just the thing about writers, you know, being frustrating musicians, you know, when I say about the creative process, but the very nature and the way in which the music was written about was actually sort of part of the whole deal... And actually, as Charles says, you know, it's, it's, not just, it's not hermetic. It's not just referring to kind of music per se. It's referring to jazz. It's referring to literature. It's referring to William Burroughs. It's referring to John Coltrane. It's opening up whole new worlds, whole new potential avenues of exploration. I'm John Lloyd, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Jude, you're a different generation to these guys. You're probably a bit younger than me, but pretty much the same. You would have been reading the music press at, at this yeah. time. And really at the tail end of what Andrew's talking about being that sort of golden age. So let's talk about what was it like sort of looking into it from the outside and trying to trying to break into that world was, yourself. Looking into it was fantastic. You know, I, I my first music magazine I bought on August the 10th, 1988, and it was 48p, and it was Smash It, so I was 10. I remember Brother Beyond drawing the cover with, with uh, surfboards. You know, it wasn't a pivotal moment in my life, you know, it didn't change, you know, Brother Beyond did not change my, my life. But um, <coughs> I was a big Smashes reader as a child, um, a magazine that I know people have different opinions about, but uh, it talked to young people about music in a way that was intelligent and clever and had a real sense of humour about it. And I had a sense of humour about pop stars, which I really responded to, you know, it took people off their pedestals a bit, which I really liked. But yeah, I was, I grew up, um, I was a teenager in the 90s, so... Um, you know, every week I'd go down to Sullivan's and go sign in this little town where I'm from in South Wales, and you know, my pocket money would all go on music magazines. I did look up to you know, people who wrote for those magazines with you know the kind of kind of awe because it seemed like such a distant world, um, and you know, writers were sort of like pop stars in a way to me. You know, I never thought I'd I'd sort of break into that world, and I only did very much in a, in a very random way, which, to be honest, I find that was how most music writers end up doing it you know I'd left university spent four years doing completely random jobs set up this little London fanzine smoke and people at Word which had just started up at the time liked it I started freelancing for Word magazine and they basically needed somebody in two days a week to make the tea and answer the phone to PRs and stuff so I went in and just you know got in there and was very very lucky because I think Word was I was at Word for nearly five, no, four and a half years, um, and I was reviews editor there for two and a half years. Um, basically decided I wanted to write rather than be a, an editor because uh, 
it was driving me nuts. These are, you know, it sounds ridiculous. You get bags of uh, C. Ds every day, which is very, very exciting for about a year. Then, then you realise most of it is dreadful, and you can't, oh, you can't get through it all, or, and it's uh, you just feel like a, a hamster in a wheel, really. <laughs> you always think you're missing missing the new big thing. Um, and I preferred writing, so I went off and I freelanced, and I was writing for I write written since for newspapers as well as magazines. But at Word, I think we were the last. That was the last time that. Um, there are other magazines I for now, don't get me wrong, but it felt like that, that was a little independent, slightly maverick publication yeah. that was trying to do something a bit different, sort of in the spirit of, um, you know, I, I thought maybe Andrew had did write for, for, for Word. Um, did you have for Word, David? I never did. I was never asked. We never, it was not my fault, obviously. But obviously Charles did. I was great about, you know... They, it was a, me. I had a bit more it. of a maverick spirit. Charles did. Charles, we got Charles writing about TV, which is fantastic, because... Charles was... I remember this brilliant piece you wrote about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was really great. Um, but getting people that had been known for years um, as brilliant writers, you know, to write about different obsessions of theirs and stuff like that. What I think, you know, kind of, I obviously got into it at the tail end of the glory days and I'd hear all these stories about you know, these amazing press trips and these mountains of cocaine and all this kind of stuff, which I never saw. Um, no, and, um, you know, but I, I'm not, not, not complaining. I've had, a, I've had a great time and it's a wonderful thing to do to write about music. But um, I've sensed in the last 10 years some publications getting a lot a less, um, a lot more risk averse, to use a horrible phrase, about, you know, what kind of journalism they have in there. Um, obviously, the move to online, people are, companies are looking for articles that have hits more and more. So you're more likely to have an article about somebody who's possibly less interesting than some other musicians because um, more people will just look at pictures of them. And I've noticed this across the board. Um, not always. And, you know, I'm quite lucky that I write for editors. I think are really, really great editors. Um, I don't write for editors. I try not to write for editors. They drive me nuts because they drive me nuts. But um, what is great, there are, there are still writers out there who really care about writing and I really want to write in original and interesting ways about music. You know, I'm 35. I'm not the young generation. There are, you know, I'm yes, 20 years older than the, than the generation we should be talking about. But, you know, there's lots of people coming through, even publications of like the NME, which obviously is selling a fraction of what it sold in its, in its glory days. I've got good writers coming through there, and uh, it's really great to hear that people are agreeing that there hasn't been this particular golden age. But I think... Obviously, it was different in Charles's day as well. You know, obviously, some fantastic writers who were inventing this language, but the access that people had back then and the way that um, the music industry would cooperate with writers has changed massively. Um, you know, the doors are closed a lot mm -hmm. of the time now. You get twenty minutes rather than three days on a tour bus. Mm -hmm. The difference um, is, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you. No, I was no, going to no. come on to why that why that change is. Then what's happened? the difference is that in Let's not talk about golden ages, silver ages, bronze ages, <laughs> platinum ages, or stone ages. But the point is that at the, that particular time, they needed us. They needed us because they couldn't get the artists. There was no, you know, there was no internet. There was no significant dom UK domestic commercial radio. There was, uh, you know, there was no, um, there was no cable TV. Obviously, no, um, no MTV. There was no internet. They needed us to form a bridge between the musicians and the companies who were promoting them and the audience they wanted to reach, which is why we were able to get away with being, um, you know, being so snotty and contrary, because they needed us. With the development of a whole heap of new media 
They no longer need the music press through web pages, through YouTube, through everything else that you guys can name. We are the middleman that has been eliminated. And we basically, we, my lot, we just took advantage of the fact that they needed us. I mean, somebody like some record company boss might take exception to a snotty review and pull the advertising. They always brought it back six months later. There was nowhere else for them to take it to. We were the bridge. Now we're not, and, theref- um, and therefore we get ignored by industry and punters alike because there are all these direct connections through digital media. We will never have a perfect storm like that again because the culture and the technology have changed too much. Before, I'm just going to ask Andrew the next question, but before I do, I just I was reminded to, to say, which I didn't do at the beginning, that what we're doing in this panel, we're going to talk about the state of the music industry for a bit, and then we'll get onto the massive piles of cocaine towards the end of it. So that's, <laughs> so that's coming, don't, don't worry. So, Andrew, yeah, so let's talk about reasons, again, why the situation has changed. You know, obviously there's the internet and, and everything, and there's, as Charles has just said, many more ways for people to consume music. But also what the internet has done is it's enabled people to write about music that wasn't necessarily being covered by those magazines at the time. So, or, or would, you, would you suggest that that wasn't you know, a valid accusation? Did those weekly magazines not cover all waterfronts of music equally? No magazine can cover all the waterfronts of music equally. What Charles has said is absolutely true. For many, many years, the music press effectively operated as a monopoly and behaved, frankly, as self-indulgently and badly as monopolies tend to. <laughs> um, then then all, the, all this competition appeared. And again, it's that thing that it was competition that, in terms of people accessing it, was easier because they didn't have to go up the road to buy a newspaper and cheaper because they didn't have to pay for it at all. And price and convenience will trump most things mm-hmm. for most people. So that, that's, that's basically what changed. But in terms of covering a broad range of music, I thought, certainly at the time when I started reading the weekly music papers, Melody Maker and NME, in Australia in the late 80s, and Australia then, in that pre-internet time, seemed so, so very much more isolated than it does now. I mean, I used to read music papers which arrived in Australia by boat four months after they'd been published in London. It was often the case that I had been reading about a band for six months before I ever heard a note of their music, um, which all just now seems incomprehensible when you can look up anything almost instantly. Almost, I, I think that I, I mean this as the highest possible tribute to my, my peers and colleagues at Melody Maker that almost all of these scripts were in fact a massive disappointment <laughs> <laughs> by the time I actually heard what they sounded like, having read these sort of like lyrical opinions to their majesty for months and months and months, thinking, God, this must be the best thing ever. And then you actually get hold of the record and think, Christ. Um, that used to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, 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 it got changed. It, it got superseded by technology, but that, though Melody Maker was limited to being a weekly music magazine of 64 or 72 or however many pages a week, certainly to me, in a place that seemed at the time as isolated and remote as Australia, it managed to open up universes. It was not just records that I'd never heard of and never would have heard of if they hadn't been mentioned in Melody Maker. It was books, films, art, all kinds of other things, because I think what has become kind of removed from the equation as the music press such as it still is has become more and more timid 
Melody Maker Enemy, most when they had the monopoly, were able to indulge a realization that if you write about music, that is a license to write about anything, and they did that. Mm-hmm. I would just say there's there's one other thing we've talked a lot about the internet, but I don't think it was just the internet. I mean, the internet obviously was did not help, but in the 1990s there was already kind of a crisis. We've mentioned already the fact that. All of a sudden, whereas for some mysterious reason, the national press wouldn't touch mm. the enormous groups like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. For some reason, they decided they would have no interest for anybody. And the only way you could read you know, about these things was just looking in this obscure little chart somewhere that there was such a thing called Pink Floyd and Dark Side of the Moon that had been number one, number one album for like 72 weeks, whatever. But this was never written about. We never, nobody ever in the mainstream press deigned or thought to kind of write about any of these people, these mysteriously massively successful people. They managed to be massive and yet subterranean, completely subterranean at the same time. Now, by the 90s, that had changed. If you wanted to read about pulp, you could probably turn to the Sunday Telegraph magazine. Fact, and they'd David, have something about it. In fact, David, during as recently as 1994, the broadsheet papers missed Kurt Cobain's suicide entirely. Well, no, they had it. No, but in the obituary, um, Dan, Dan Hartman, who wrote Instant Replay, he died the same day. He was the main, he, he was the main obituary, and Kurt Cobain Western was like... Mail in yeah, Swans, yeah. The Western Mail and Wells covered it out of the cutting, my little 16-year-old yeah. cuttings file. But yeah. uh, they, were, they were on the case, obviously. I think that was almost <laughs> like a turning point, actually, was that. But, but mm. so, so there was that. So the fact that you could read about this kind of music all over the place. But secondly, when you were talking about these various waterfronts, this is the thing that happened in the 1990s. Suddenly, music became a very, very fragmented, diverse, and very prolific as well. You suddenly got to a stage where there was really a lot of, not just music, lots of really good music out there, more possibly than the market could bear. And I, my personal theory is that this is what, in a sense, gave rise to Oasis, and before that, the Stone Roses, that people were suddenly... The yearn for the days of the Beatles, when it was very simple, when you just had this one big white guitar group that we could all talk about around the water cooler, and there was this, almost like this massive central space developed, and people just wanted it filled with one big white guitar group. And I think that's kind of what brought Oasis into being. I think that, well, that's sort of like something that, you know, explains the mystery to me, you know, personally. But it also meant that everyone was therefore chasing a handful. It wasn't just, you know, sort of Oasis that was so blur or whatever. Um, it then became infected the kind of independence of music journalism in the sense that, like, because Oasis became so huge, it became imperative to have them on the cover. And there's various magazines by now competing, you know, to go Oasis, you've got your cues and mojos or whatever. And that means that when Oasis produced one of their crappy albums that's clearly... Even Noel himself agrees about three years later is a load of old rubbish or two out of five at best. Of course, they all get kind of... It's mandatory to praise these albums to the hilt. Because, you know, the idea that, 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 that you know, if you give them like one out of five and then they go kind of begging for, like, you know, the exclusive interview says, oh, I don't think so. Q just gave it five out of five. I think we'll go to them. You know, what do you think? You know, so this stuff like that then compromises, as it were, the independence, the integrity of the music press. But didn't the music press sort of create that in a way? No, obviously not you, David, because I know, I know really? we've made your feelings about the way it's perfectly clear. <laughs> but being somebody who, you know, I was 16 in 1994, so I was in the eye of... The Britpop storm. It may have felt like the music press were creating it, but it was really it was just something that was happening. I mean, I was conscious of that actually in about 1989, 1990, when things like Happy Mondays came along. It was really just something that was happening. About 1987, 1988, I remember really thinking, in a way, there's no such thing as the kids. There's a bunch of Mm -hmm. bands that we're trying to foist on you, like Dinosaur Junior or the Young Gods, or all these kind of things. But no one's there isn't a this isn't really sort of as it were authentically happening at street level in a way that like and but by the time of like the roses and mondays you know we're going up to manchester and realizing it would almost be 
declared this kind of independent baggy republic or whatever. I mean, sort of roses, and it was almost like people were kind of flying kind of flared jeans out, the, you know, like flags out the windows or something like that. It really was extraordinary. And London-based music press really weren't picking up on just how strong a thing it was. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and you're listening to a panel discussion with the music journalists Andrew Muller, Charles Shaw Murray, Jude Rogers and David Stubbs. Go to resonancefm.com and give them some money. Jude, I wanted to ask you about something that Andrew mentioned, which was the role of the fans, I guess. I, again, bringing up Andrew's book, I was, what I was able to do while reading that was he would mention some obscure... 80s Australian country band <laughs> and I could immediately go on Spotify and yeah. listen to it and that's yeah. something that is it's an amazing technological <laughs> thing but it's easy do you think there's if, if the fans have not got to do the work and put, really put the work in to get the stuff they, they, people don't really care as much um, I've thought about this a lot because I have a little brother who's 24 and um, he doesn't really remember the world without the internet which I find very weird you know it's 11 years between us but um, I sent my first email when I was 18, you know, by which time I'd you know, been enjoying my teens and just had to you know, save my pocket money and all this kind of stuff. It's been interesting seeing it through his, his experience because he's as into music as I was at that age. Um, but all, you know, he just has to kind of email me you know, or text me um, and not wait to you know, phone me in the evening from home and basically say, you know, I, I quite like this band, who are they like? And I can knock him up a Spotify playlist and he can listen to it. And he does go out and buy things. And he does go, and go, he does go to gigs. Mm-hmm. You know, I know not every 24-year-old is necessarily like that. He illegally, illegally downloads a lot of stuff as well. Um, I know that as a fact too. Um, I think it's a different kind of experience, really. Um, you know, I do think, you know, when we live in a world where there's just so much all the time, it can get really suffocating and smothering. And you need a lot of willpower to deal with that when you've got this, you know, open window to the world just mm-hmm. you're there all the time that you could look through at any point but you just have to you know exert a little bit of willpower and you know remind yourself that you know going to record shop is a really great thing to do because it's really enjoyable you might you know you you should enjoy that experience of the serendipity of just chancing upon something you might not have chanced on otherwise because mm-hmm. you know a lot of your searching online is directed by yourself mm-hmm. you know it's not uh, to do with chance and things just happening around you then again you know, I find about so much about music online through friends and you know writers I trust who I do still read who write for websites and write mm-hmm. for other publications. So it's um, you know I think this excitement is still there. I think it's very easy to be nostalgic about how mm-hmm. difficult it was. You know, I'm not nostalgic at all about the fact that I spent all my student loan on CDs, which I've, mm-hmm. I haven't got out of the boxes since I moved into my house. You know, they're all my iTunes, but I haven't got them out. Mm-hmm. You know, my little brother has well, he spent his money on other things, obviously. <laughs> all right, I want to. I'm going to go back up this end and ask, ask Charles first, but I want everybody's opinion on this, really, although David's already <coughs> voiced one on this, on this question. There's always been a, 
I guess, a, a, a sort of parallel world of rock music and pop music of various types. And I think the best music writers have always tried to sort of blur those two things and not really think that pop music is any way lesser than rock music or something. But things change, you know, the trends change and things, and now we're in a world where there's pop idol and, you know, th- and things like that, so much more sort of manufactured pop, and there doesn't seem to be that much going on on the, on the other side of that. So has... So do you think music has changed over the years That's, and that has had an effect on Well, on I mean, press? music has indeed changed over the years. Changed for the worse, but I, I think, the, really But the, the... You know, it's not so much that the music has changed, it's the patterns of production and the patterns of consumption which have changed. A little bit of politics there, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. <laughs> but essentially, again, uh, I'm... Uh, Old men remember. My sensibility was formed by an era in which there were so few outlets that lots of different kinds of music competed for those outlets. So you'd listen to, I don't know, Alan Freeman's chart show on the radio or watch Top of the Pops, and you'd have everything from avant-garde... Um, pop to heavy rock to granny music. <laughs> you know, by when I say granny music, I mean, nowadays your granny will probably listen to Captain Beefheart while smoking a joint after the grandkids have gone to bed. But in those... In you know in in, the, in those days it was like sentimental stuff stuff left over from the thirties and forties. So everybody got exposed to everybody else's taste in music. We're now in a situation where the technology allows for total narrow casting. You know, radio me. You know, you can people can spend their entire lives immersed in whatever form of music they decide they like, whether, uh, whether it's the latest successors to what used to be called techno-grime, whatever, or death metal, you can live in your own musical world. You don't necessarily end up having to rub up against other people's taste, which means that you don't get irritated by people who listen to absolute bloody rubbish, but at the same time, you don't get the chance to make those serendipitous discoveries mm-hmm. of stuff that you might not think think you like and dis- discover you do. I mean, I remember w- during the 80s when the whole sort of wag clubland thing was happening and Robert Elms was going, oh, my God, there are kids in one club and one minute they're dancing to the Gap Band, the next minute they're dancing to the Clash. Oh, my God, this is a breakthrough. And I'm thinking, when I was a kid, if you said you liked Hendrix, the Beatles, the Temptations and Dusty Springfield, it didn't mean that you were daringly eclectic. It just meant you had normal taste (laughs) so you know on one level you've got unprecedented access on another level everybody can live in their own little golden musical bubble which is a sort of weird version of sonic heroin everything else is a long way away and doesn't matter and I just remember one thing that my dear much missed friend Tony Tyler, who was the guy who hired me out of the underground press so I could cause trouble in a larger environment, he said, what I want for the NME is we're not just about the music. We're about what the music's about. We can... Anything that people write a song about, we can write an article about. And, you know, this is why we got everything from, you know, Allen Ginsberg to Marvel Comics into something that was notionally a rock magazine. 
or rather a pop magazine, a mainstream pop weekly produced by a disgusting global capitalist corporation, we had a bloodless coup in attempt to turn it into the world's first mass market underground rock weekly. But I think, in a way, our work here on this planet is done. I think we did our job, in a sense, almost too well. Now everybody else in every other media is there, and it's like, you know, Joe Strummer saying, go straight to hell, boy, there ain't no need for you. Our work here is pretty much done. The, uh, the technology has given everybody access to everything, and, you know, you no, you no longer necessarily need to sort of tear open the pages and, uh, and it's like, oh, you know, what does, what, does Ian McDon- what does Ian McDonald or Alan Jones say is cool this week? You know, does, um, doesn't matter anymore. If you, can, if, um, if you can type in its name, you can hear it. You don't have to go to the record shop and say, can you put this on? And they go, oh, you just go into listening booth five or put on a set of headphones number six. You know, it's like the middlemen and women have all been eliminated and, you know, we are ba- we're, ba- we're basically on the, fring- on the fringes now and everybody else is doing it for themselves. I don't know whether to feel glad or sorry. <laughs> Nobody even wants our livers. <laughs> Andrew, you've, you've written very specifically about this phenomenon of getting old and gradually thinking that all Careful young people's now. music is is rubbish and that's something we all go through but you are still you know nominally a rock journalist so do do you think all young people's music is is um, rubbish how do you become how how do you carry on a career as a rock journalist when you possibly do genuinely think all young people's music is rubbish i, I don't necessarily think all young people's music is rubbish i'm sure some of it's absolutely splendid i just don't care <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 not for me you're it's one of the interesting things about being a music fan that your relationship mm. with music changes uh, as, as you get older in a way that would seem incomprehensible to you when you are very young. But a lot, a lot of it is a lot of us is basically down to the fact that unless the infant in question is some bizarre freakish prodigy like Prince or somebody, there is almost no chance I can see that a record made by somebody... Who's 55 now? He's 55 now, Mm. but he did start very early. But I I, I can see almost no likelihood that a record made by somebody half my age is going to be terribly interesting to me. I mean, it's it's just not going to tell me anything I didn't already know, probably. Um, Whereas the records that you heard made by people that age when you were Mm. approximately that age do kind of stay with you, Mm -hmm. and, and you grow up with them, and for better and for worse, they become different aspects of the soundtrack um, of, of your existence. The, thing that, the other thing that does change, though, and it's what, what Charles is saying is absolutely true, is that we are now able to... The other reason I don't pay much attention to what the alleged kids are listening to is that I don't have to, uh, because you can create that self-contained universe. You know, I, I have, as I'm sure most people do here, a, an electronic device the size of a bar of soap which has... You know, you know, frankly, terrifying intimation of mortality. More songs on it now than I've got time to listen to again. So it's a really terrifying thought. I own an iPod which has songs on it that I will never, ever listen to again. There isn't time. So when we all get to a point, and this is a phenomenon that our, our former colleague, uh, melody maker Simon Reynolds, writes about very well in his, his book Retromania, that you just end up carrying this 
this history around in your pocket, uh, which is, uh, I think becomes kind of a burden uh, on the listener, and I think it becomes kind of a burden on music. The, the, you, there is this feeling of just nothing goes away anymore, in the same way that no newspapers are tomorrow's chip wrap anymore. All music has a, a shelf life of forever, and I think you get to... I, I, I know for a fact talking to musicians that the same thing kind of afflicts them, this sort of sense of existential futility of just throwing another morsel onto this already infinite heap mm-hmm. um, and just thinking, really, what's the point? But I think you, you get like that as a listener as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, why would I want to go out and seek out more stuff? I don't have time for the stuff I already like. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Yeah, I think in a sense, this this like we're in. I I certainly feel a sense of being in mourning for scarcity. You know, not only do I want the kind of toothpaste back in the tube, I want a return of toothpaste rationing or something like that. It really is. <laughs> you know, it's like with with Perubu. When I first found out about the group Perubu, I thought oh, I'm going to love Perubu. I had no way of finding out what the hell they sounded like. Well, it was two years between my reading about Perubu and thinking, oh, God, God, and then saving up. You know, with all the other various things. You know, there was a two year lag between. We actually heard Perubu. And, and I, I, used, I, I, used to, I used to get the same thing, like, sorry, like reading about these artists in Melody Maker for months before mm. I ever heard a note and just thinking, God, this must be majestic, and then taking home some rubbish like Skinny Puppy, which, oh, you, you, still sorry, wrote, which yes. you still owe yeah, me for, <laughs> listening to this tripe over and over yeah. again trying to persuade myself of <laughs> well, its yeah. merits because obviously Melody Maker wouldn't put them on the cover <laughs> no, if no. they were crap. Yeah, there was economic scarcity personally. I, you know, I had to save it from a paper round. If I didn't like an album, you know, by gum, I bloody well learned to. You know, and it was, there was that. <laughs> As well, um, but no. Actually, Charles mentioned something earlier on that reminded me. I think one of the things, if we're talking specifically about pop music as well, in the seventies and eighties, there was always this wonderful combination of the sublime and the ridiculous, and both kind of needed each other or whatever. You know, it was David Bowie, Lieutenant Pigeon. It was ABC, Captain Beaky or whatever. And in a sense, Lena Martel and Simple Minds, whatever. And, and the thing about it is, in a funny kind of way, you needed the Lena Martels and the St. Winifred School Choir or whatever, and all tight fits and all this kind of thing. I, it makes something, it's almost like it reminded me that there was a sense we're all living together in society in a funny kind of way. You yeah. know, mums, dads, kids, whatever. There was that funny sense of community and, and that. And the music that you were really into was kind of defining itself against all of that. And then I suppose what happened with pop music is, as happened more broadly in the industry, became taken over by kind of younger, slightly hipper people who knew their Springsteen or whatever. And they fucked up absolutely everything because it was much better off in the very early days when it was people, when record companies and were run by people that just come out of the RAF and then, well, you jolly seem to know what you're doing. Carry on, carry on. None of it all sounds like an absolute racket to me. Think beautiful and wonderful things got done when those people were in charge. It all fucked up when it was people who sort of kind of knew what they were talking about. Yeah, I get it. I get passion. In fact, I can see how we can market it. I can see how we can kind of maximise this. So yeah. the democracy is the essential problem, then, as you say. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it was, it, no, it was, it was democracy. You know, I just like to say, has its virtues. No, but it, it was the kind of people, the, when the younger, slightly hipper people came in and took charge of things. And so it happened in pop music. All of a sudden, you've got neither the Bowies, the new Bowies, nor Lena Martels anymore. It was just this kind of slightly slick, pneumatic, efficient stuff, you know, that would work as pop music, you know, sort of functional club music, essentially, which is, I think, what the charts are to this day. And, I mean, it's telling now... I mean, people say, is pop music the same as it used to be? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but... Um, it prob- but there's one thing that we can say for definite. Once there was a top of the pops, and now there isn't a top of the pops. I think it's, um, you know, if you think back to, um, well, the late 80s, which was when I was first conscious of music, you know, if you read about 
77, 78, 87, 88 now. You know, kind of, you know, dance music is kicking off and all this stuff is happening. I remember watching Top of the Pops and it was always, you know, covers of songs from the 60s, stuff that had got to number one because it was on a Coca-Cola advert. Um, when people talk about X Factor now, which I know Neil did earlier on, I don't think it's changed as much mm-hmm. as we think it has. I think the, the media is just more focused on writing about it and writing on things that do outrage, outrage a lot of people. So I, and I do think we do have young people do react against things. You know, um, people will you know every, every Christmas now when the X Factor single might go to number one. There's always you know various campaigns that try and top it off the number one spot, and some have been successful, some a lot of them haven't been successful. I always am surprised looking at um, uh, the fantastic popular blog on Freaky Trigger that documents the number one singles and has done since 1952 and there's so much shit there you know it's gonna, mm. pop music has always been this combination of mm-hmm. fantastic stuff and absolute dross mm. and we you know it's, it's important to to remember that really but I think it's um, it's very easy in the internet age now to think that it, because people are talking about a certain subject mm. that's what everybody is into or, or get, is for or against you know there's lots of people getting on with their their lives away from that and you know I'm talking about the you know um, carrying your music you know as, as this kind of monolith in your pocket mm-hmm. as Andrew, Andrew does you know um, I don't I don't have an iPod now I've kind of just abandoned it I have my iPhone which has about I change stuff on it quite regularly I have no more than 200 tracks on it mm-hmm. at a time and it's the most liberating thing ever you know it's, uh, just mm-hmm. going to random record shops or going to random you know music blogs or whatever is can be as exciting but I know what the pressure is like to have that iPod with all your music on because mm. I used to have it and one day I thought fuck this I'm just going to delete it and start again mm-hmm. and um, I think the more people do that the more liberating it is and the more chance you've got of getting into new things I think one upshot of what's going on in music now is people have, people do have do you seem to have quite wide tastes again people are less bothered about cool mm. people are writing about different things you know I've been writing a, a little blog for the Guardian about Shirley Collins today you know, um, cool. I was writing about Kraftwerk this morning. You know, my tastes are all over the place. But mm-hmm. as, I think, as, as we were saying earlier on, most people's tastes are all over the place. And uh, it's just hard to remember that when online media t- makes us think everybody's, you know, one or the other or kind of foreign against these big, massive monoliths of well, this pop is, culture. This is where I wanted to go next because I think both Andrew and David have, have vaguely alluded to this. But, you know, back in the day, as I've already said, Jude, when you say you and I were reading these two guys writing in the, in, in the 90s, it seems like a really an embarrassing thing to admit at my age now, but my entire music taste was dictated by why what you wrote about, right? It was it was easy because you told me what bands were good and I would go out, they would be the ones that I would get into. And some of them I would like, some of them I wouldn't. You were curating my music tastes for me. So where do where do the young people go now for that sort of thing? You know, I still read writers that I, you know, I've always read. Um, I'll still read certain reviewers because mm-hmm. I'll trust them for their honesty. Um, and, you know, I won't always agree with them, but, you know, the, you know I'll always read Alexis Petridis' review on a Friday mm-hmm. in The Guardian. I'll always read, you know, kind of um, people on The Quietest. There's, there's, there's people I will always read. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Younger generation below me, I don't know. You know, I think they're obviously, I'd say, you know, if it was seven or eight years ago, I'd say pitchfork, but I don't know if people, you know, people mm-hmm. do anymore, to be honest. I, I teach um, a class... Um, on arts journalists and the history and the present day of it for, with some young people, some of whom are, are freelance writers now, which is great. So there are opportunities out there somewhere. Um, but, um, you know, I was talking about Pitchfork the other day and two people knew what Pitchfork was, which really staggered me. And they do, th- these are people who do read music websites and are into music. Mm-hmm. So things just change so quickly. I, I'm too old. But to I'm sure it's not because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're stupid or they've been no, dumbed down. By the way. It's nothing but, like that at all. I mean... I mean, it's inevitable in my, my time, especially going to, like, a boys' school or whatever, there was a sort of inevitable rite of passage that sort of drew you into this kind of music. And quite often it started off with the prog, about the fourth year, the fourth form ever, suddenly all these kind of Genesis and Led Zeppelin albums would kind of get passed out. And then that would be a kind of sort of initiation into more mature, you know, rock music. And then, and, and then gradually, and then to make connection, then people would sort of bring in copies of the music press or whatever. And, and then people could sort of, you know, take it or leave it after that to whatever degree, but it was something that was inevitably there. You were inevitably drawn into it in, in some way or other. And I, yeah, obviously I can't... I don't think... I mean, I've got a nephew called Dominic. I remember I was doing the single to The Guardians two or three years ago, and one of the things I had to review was just this crappy, bog-standard punk thing. Um, it was just somebody, just somebody... Some sort of shitty neo-punk thing but he was utterly horrified by it when I played it to him he just said it's like they've just gone into their garage or something picked up some instruments not even looked at them and started to sort of play away and said well yeah that's probably the point you know, that's punk you know but he was he's eight, he was eight you know he was sort of 15 16 he was horrified about that idea so you do get the feeling that maybe you know this kind of whole sort of dialectical countercultural thing that we all kind of take for granted as part of our sort of cultural hinterland is Something has been kind of memory white with the present generation, but I don't know. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and you're listening to a panel discussion about the future of music journalism for Resonance FM's fundraising week. Why not go to resonancefm.com and donate a little money to help keep us running? All right, look, I'm going to pause because we, we have been going on about the, um, the, the state of the music industry for a while, and I do want to get us to the... Uh the part where we talk about amusing anecdotes about rock stars. And if Andrew doesn't mind me telling this story, um, we, were, <laughs> we 
We were both at a party a few weeks ago where the, um, the singer and, and guitarist out of Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore, was there. I spent the entire evening avoiding trying to talk to him because he's, he's something of a hero. But the first thing Andrew said about it was, I'm trying to think if I've ever written anything bad about him in print. <laughs> Now, so I want everybody to... to, he, to is, he is quite a big bloke. So <laughs> He's very th- tall. Th- this is a, a reasonable consideration. <laughs> so um, the first anecdotes I'd like people to try and, try and come up with is basically when have you... Because it's obviously a quite a small world, this world that you used to inhabit, the music journalism world. When have you come up across a, a person who in the past you have written something rather unpleasant about and what did they think of that? Anybody jump in with examples? Amazingly, it's never happened to me. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's never happened. So that, That's because at Melody Maker Stubbs, you never actually ever went to any gigs. I've tried not to, yes. <laughs> this Everybody slagged off and receded it. It was at Melody Maker, and there are a couple of other people in the crowd who will vouch for this. Something, something of an occasion, the week building up to Stubbs' annual outing to, to, <laughs> to actually see an evening of live rock and roll being. I before. just thought gigs were shite and so. <laughs> so starting at the end then, Charles, when have you had an encounter with somebody who you've upset through your, through your work? Well, <laughs> <laughs> let me count the many ways. Um, let's see, I think something is coming through the ether and no, I haven't been inhaling any. Okay, Frankfurt, 1975, Rolling Stones have just put out an album called Black and Blue, which me and my mates thought was severely substandard. (laughs) For some reason, NME had managed to score itself an exclusive on the album, which meant that we got to write about it a week before any of our competition. And we remembered... A quotation by Mick Jagger to the effect that I don't care I don't care what they say about me on page twenty as long as my picture's on the cover. So we thought, right, we're having you, Boyle. <laughs> so we put a picture of Charlie Watts on the cover. Um, captioned Exclusive Album Review. Charlie Watts and his fabulous Rolling Stones. <laughs> So, and I was the guy who was enlisted to do the deed to wield the knife, and I probably took more pleasure in it than, strictly speaking, as a humanitarian, I should have done. (laughs) So, the next thing that came up was that, because the Stones were about to play eight weeks at Earl's Court, which was a thing groups at the time did, Led Zeppelin did five... Was it five days? I think the Stones had to do six days because that's one more. So I got sent to Frankfurt to review to uh, review the Rolling Stones playing at a hall which was about three quarters full of Germans and one quarter full of nearby American servicemen who like to throw beer about and say things like "Yeah, rock and roll" <laughs> uh, every two or three minutes or "Boogie." Anyway, after this concert, which was sort of mildly amusing, the assembled press corps were escorted up to Ron Wood's hotel room. And Ron Wood was on his first tour with the Stones and was therefore a bit on sufferance, you know, a bit auditioning. And at one point, you know, there was this big table at the centre of the room where Keith was holding court and... 
five journalists were ushered up to the table to sit with Keith. And Keith was not the jovial old pirate we know and love today. <laughs> you know, everybody adores him, but you've just got to make sure he doesn't set fire to the bed. So we're all sitting around this table, and Keith is in his hard-eyed drug hoover period. He produces this stuff from a wrap in his pocket and a razor blade, and there are six people around the table, and he chops out a dozen lines. And then the motherfucker snorts them all himself while staring around with one of those you-want-to-make-something-of-it looks. Anyway... I soon discovered that even though the room is awash in powders, though Keith seems insistent on keeping them all to himself, there's only one person in the room who has any incendiary combustible intoxicants. Thank you. Unfortunately, around this time, I'm sitting on a sofa talking to Ron Wood, and somebody comes and sits down very heavily on the other side of me and goes... I thought your review of our album was bloody stupid. So, what can I do? I ignore him and carry on rolling this joint, which has suddenly become the focus of great interest because nobody else has any weed. Then the Warner Brothers press officer comes up to me and he's turned an interesting shade of green and he says, "Uh, Nick says that if you don't leave, you know, he's going to have you thrown out. So I go... Okay, and I'm halfway to the door with this half-rolled joint. Keith goes, oi, he's got the only joint in the room. He's staying. I think it's interesting that Mick Jagger got to say who did and didn't stay in Ron Wood's hotel room. Ron Wood did not have control over the door policy of his own hotel room, but that's because he was the new kid. So I get um, then the press officer's back. He's turned an even more interesting shade of green. By this time, I've got the... I've got the joint lit, and I'm heading towards the door. Keith follows me, and he goes, You don't need to worry about him. Give me a room number. There's a party in Billy Preston's room later on. I'll call you. And I pass Keith the joint. He takes it, takes a step back, slams the door in my face. I just think, the idol of my teens has just fucking ripped me off for my very last joint. <laughs> And that was the night I stoned the stones. <laughs> and Jay? Um, I, I, I cannot compete with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've been fairly lucky on that front. I've, I've certainly never actually been uh, assaulted by anybody. Um, although many, 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 many years ago when I was a ghastly, snotty teenage rock critic in Sydney, a, a friend of mine was actually punched in the face at a party by somebody who thought he was me. Um, <laughs> which still I find hilarious. Um, I, I've mostly been really lucky in that, not, not necessarily as a, as a matter of policy, but I, I've tended only to rubbish people who later turned out to have something of a sense of humour. Um, since, I mean, you too, since their early 90s reinvention, I've written about a lot and travelled with a lot and indeed written sleeve notes and programme notes for, but the first thing I ever wrote about them was... a an absolute hammering um, when they were in Sydney in the late 80s touring with their, their sort of rattle and hum thing. Um, but though it didn't, certainly didn't appear so at the time, they did, it turned out, have quite a sense of humour about themselves. And the first time I ever actually interviewed them properly, far too much of the early part of that interview was taken up with them amusing themselves at my embarrassment as they recited tracts of that review. 
back to me. So I, I guess the, the, the trick is to just basically insult people who, um, who will laugh it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jude, I want to ask you this one. Yeah. If, if you can't think of a music example, I can, I've thought of two actually, okay, briefly. Um, when I, was, I wrote um, the, the on music column for the Gardens Film Music section, and that was still existed um, for two years, and I did one column about the Verve's um, last album, I believe, and um, it, it, you know, in retrospect, looking back, it was one of these things that you know, just shooting fish in a barrel kind of jobs. But I couldn't think of words to write about that fortnight, so I wrote about that. Um, that was on the Friday morning, that Friday night, the Verve headlined Reading, and Richard Ashcroft got the crowd at Reading to boo me, apparently. So that was nice. I wasn't there, but um, I heard about this later, and I was quite proud because you know, I'd written it, I said in pajamas in my living room, and I was like, hey. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm on Tori Amos' band list. Um, how, how do you I've get had, on that? <laughs> um, I interviewed her five or six years ago for The Word and um, basically wrote about the whole... It was, it was the worst interview to organise ever. You know, I was just being put off and put off and there were just these comical, theatrical denials. I basically just wrote for the whole process. And then when I interviewed her, I wrote about um, you know, what she was like in the interview. I basically just wrote about what, ha- what had happened leading up to the interview, what happened in the interview. And she was telling me about, you know, her obsession with Lucifer and how he came to her in dreams and stuff like that. I had been Tori Amos fan when I was 13 and 14. You know, I loved her. I put this in the piece too, you know, and that didn't, you know. Um, but, um, you know, when you meet somebody, it, it, the piece is very much about meeting somebody you used to love and kind of realising they're completely maddening. And, um, and I also thought I was convinced she'd had some plastic surgery and I made a kind of slight barb the suggestion she might have, which, you know, I, I didn't, I, it had been checked by the legal team. Um, she says that even though Morrissey tried to close the word down, you know, he didn't finally close it down, but uh, that was just the, the, the way the world, world was. But Morrissey nearly closed on the word, as same with every other newspaper. I'm amazed he hasn't c- tried to shut down the quietus after a certain music journalist uh, did a fantastic um, uh, fake biography of his. Uh, I don't ah, know who that oh is, yes, David yes, Stubbs. <laughs> um, Reader is fantastic. Actually, it's just, yeah, yeah. just well, actually, well, it's not actually. The thing is, obviously, a lot of what I did was under the kind of the cowardly guys, Mr. Agreeable. So, <laughs> and I did well. Dave Stewart, I did meet him once. I did actually once say in a Mr. Agreeable column something like, "The day I listened to a fucking Dave Stewart solo album is the day I fucked my father." <laughs> um, and then I met him shortly afterwards, but I don't think he necessarily made the connection. I'm Jonathan Meads, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, okay, so the next anecdote I would like people to think about is, um, and at least, I think at least two of you, perhaps, perhaps three, have been reviews editors for your, your respective <coughs> papers. And I want to know if anybody, you know, reviewing things is, is an in, intrinsic part of the, uh, of the music journalist's lives, may that be CDs or may that be gigs and things. Has anybody ever had a, a major album by a major band to review and somehow managed to misplace that CD? <laughs> As it happens, yes. Do you want to tell us that story, David? Okay. Um, yeah, this was 1988, and it was the Pogues, and I think Paul Mather was reviews editor at Melody Maker at the time, and um, he thought it would be a devilishly contrarian idea. Um, it was um, if I should fall from grace. If I should fall from grace with God. Indeed, yeah, David, that's right. Yes. Remember Thank it you. Well, yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, and so the idea was that, like, I'd have to basically collect. Turned around the review overnight, so I had to go and collect, go into the offices and collect um, this promo cassette that they'd sent through, this exclusive thing, you know, pre-release. 
um, pick it up and then take it home and then review, you know, then write it up and, you know, and turn in the copy the next morning when, it, you know, that was a deadline. Now, I had my little brother-in-law, and he was only about 10 or 11, and um, he was just down visiting, and I had to take him back to Euston Station to take him back up to Birmingham. Um, and I had various of his bags with me. So anyway, nipped into the um, Melody Maker offices in High Hoburn, picked up the cassette, and then sort of took him off to Euston, toddled off, waved him off, and then went back home and realised that I'd inadvertently put the cassette in one of his bags. So the um, cassette was actually up in Birmingham with him. Oh, bollocks. Mm -hmm. So um, I waited, like, it was about 8.30, 9 o'clock. I waited for the time that he probably got back home, and I woke up and said, "Um, Jazz, um, Jazz, Um, if you look in one of your bags, you'll find a cassette by a group called The Pogues. Um, it's called If I Should Fall From Grace of God. Can you... Have you found it good? C- can you just... Have you got a tape machine or something like that? Good. Can you play it to me over the phone? <laughs> so I can hear it. And um, he said, yeah, all right. You know, I thought, great, brilliant. Problem solved. And so I thought, well, that's, that's fine. You know, I mean, it's over the phone, but you, it's The Pogues. You get the bloody idea, you know. So... Um, <laughs> So anyway, so what I did is after... So I thought, well, you know, there's that kind of great... You know, as P.G. Woodhouse sense, relief came surging over me in great chunks, you know. So I just felt like kind of a nice surge of relief. And, and uh, so I started listening to this thing. And after about ten seconds, I thought, I can't be bothered with this. You know, so I thought, what I'll do, I'll just put a tape machine, one of my little tape machines, next to the receiver. I'll just record it. And, um, you know, as he's playing it down, I'll listen to it later, you know. Dream, you know. Um... <laughs> And that's what I did, you know. So I'd listen to the first 10 or 11 seconds, and then I thought, you know, shall I listen to it later on? And I thought, no, I'll just go to bed, I'll just get up early and um, do it then, you know. So anyway, you know, I got up nice and early the next morning, about, you know, about 8.30, and then uh, went and picked out this cassette, you know, with this obviously not exactly pristine recording, hopefully, of the Pogues album over the phone, but hopefully free, you know. I listened to it, and of course it was... Hadn't really picked it up at all, unfortunately. And um, so basically I had to write and compose an 800-word review of that album based on having heard the first 10 seconds over the phone <laughs> and kind of pretty much sort of spin out, you know, from, from, from there, really. And um, it, was, it was a desperate... It was, it, it was a pretty desperate effort. And then for some reason I kept ending progress with the words at all. And then for some, I thought it would be very funny to put at all in brackets afterwards. So you can add, like, low-level, pathetic, ironic racism to the kind of pile of crimes in terms of the whole thing. And it actually went through, and it got printed unbelievably. And then there was sort of minor complaint at the next editorial meeting. Because so it wasn't, there wasn't really an editorial process as such. The editorial process was things just got printed, and then the editors would moan about what had got published, you know, the next, next week. So I thought, yeah, if only we had a system of, like, I don't know, editors or something like that, who had a blue pencil and actually prevented rubbish getting printed, and it would never... Anyway, so it all got, you know, it got printed, and I thought I'd got away with it. I mentioned Alan Jones, the editor, who's a big Pogues fan, kind of glowered a bit and mentioned this idea of reviews were tending towards the general rather than the specific. And I thought, yeah, OK, yes, I suppose it was a little bit like that, yes. And I thought, you know, it's all blown over. And I told Simon Reynolds about it. And, and then I came into the pub, you know, like, like late that afternoon, and then there's Alan Jones staring murderously at me, and Simon Reynolds scratching his chin saying... I think I made a bit of a gaffe, David. <laughs> You've told him, haven't you? And he had it all. And um, so, yeah, the cat out of the bag. And, um, but I suppose, you know, such as my enormous high standing in the world of letters at that point, I didn't get sacked <laughs> on the spot. So. Yes, you probably worked out that question was definitely uh, yes. aimed at David. But if anyone else has, a, has an amusing, bad no, review... Uh, it, was, it was the lowest of the low. OK, so my next question then is... I mean, it's, 
a couple of obvious questions, really, but they're, they're always fun. So which pop or rock stars have you met who are perhaps <coughs> universally reviled or considered to be arseholes who actually turned out to be quite nice in the flesh? Michael Stipe from Oriam. I've heard... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, um, I did... Controversial. That is yeah. controversial. Yeah, I did the, one of... Well, possibly the last... The la- not the last interview within the UK. It's not that exciting. Um, I, did, I interviewed him for The Quietus. Um, he had done what was his last interview with Pete Fides of The Guardian, and mm-hmm. he was incredibly surly in that interview. And anybody who knows Pete Fides is the sweetest guy. So, you know, I was thinking, if he doesn't get on with Pete Fides, we're not going to get on. And R.E.M. were my first big epiphany band I adored them but I went in and um, I had 20 minutes and um, Andrew Harrison who used to edit Select in the 90s and edited Q until recently into, um, uh, he said why don't you do an exit interview with him because it's you know his last day in the job which is a great inter- idea and I put at the bottom of the piece yeah, inspired by an idea by Andrew Harrison and Michael Stipe loved it he just thought it was really funny I obviously knew my stuff because I'd been a fan for years and um he was really adorable. He was lovely. It might have been because his la- he didn't want his last interview to be this really grumpy, surly interview with people feedies and the Guardian, possibly. But he was very sweet, and I, he even um, had a picture with me in the end. So there's a picture of him smiling broadly. And I know that's <laughs> a combination of luck and uh, a good tactic going in, I think. But yeah, everyone else said he's a nightmare. So 14 old me was very happy that he wasn't. <laughs> David, can you think of a, uh, an example? Well, just generally, I mean, I was brought up with the culture of the early 80s, and I was a kind of dedicated and obedient post-punks or whatever, and the idea was that, like, this was the music that was the most existentially truthful and the most politically engaged or whatever, and heavy metal was the kind of the evil, sexist work of, of poodle-haired Satan or whatever, and <laughs> it was not to be kind of, you know, it was to be shunned and derided and deplored. And, you know, I, was, I went along with that orthodox, and that was an article of faith. And then when I actually started doing interviews when I actually became a journalist. And you realise that kind of my revered, wonderful kind of indie-type heroes were a bunch of balls-aching, snivelling, passive-aggressive little twats <laughs> who just didn't really want to say... They behaved like they were under police caution. And it was just like you had to pull quotes like, mm, if we like it, and everyone else says it, there's a bonus, you know, like teeth. And then you had to, to like, you know, create something kind of you know, readable from this sort of sow's ear of drivel. But what the glorious thing was, when you actually interviewed heavy metal people, and occasionally you just go along, you think, well, it'll be all right. And they were always wonderful. It was a bit like, you know, World Wrestling Federation wrestle, whatever. They knew that they had to put on a big show. And then you interview people like Ozzy Osbourne or even Blackie Lawless or Gene Simmons, and it was like, bless you. Because you could see your copy unfurling before you, you know, as we were talking. You think this is an easy transcription job. You know exactly what we want. There was no pain in the arse of about, so have you heard the album then? What do you think? They didn't give a shit whether they heard the album or not. <laughs> 20 million people had heard it. They didn't give a shit what I thought of it. So it was just wonderful. They just treat the whole thing like an absolute professional gig, gave you exactly what you want from a journalistic point of view. So basically my answer is all heavy metal people. Bless them. <laughs> so Andrew, same question. And you can't say Bono because you've already done him no, a bit ago. Pretty, pretty much the same answer as David, uh, I have to say. They are, without exception that I can recall, absolutely a joy. I've interviewed Ian Gillen, um, Alice Cooper, who was just it's the only interview I've ever done where I almost felt obliged to applaud at the end of it. <laughs> um, D- David Lee Roth, 
again, at the time, promoting one of his absolutely atrocious solo records, who <laughs> did ask me the question, David, right. what do you think of my new album? <laughs> Have you heard it? I went, yeah, I've heard it. He went, did you like it? I went, not really. He went, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. uh, and and just, just carried on with the show. The, thi the thing that I admired most about the Lee Roth interview, it, it, it stuck with me ever since, is it was, I was it, doing, back in the old days when you did this on cassette recorders, it got to the end of 45 minutes, in which time I think I'd said about seven words. Um, and there was that noise it make when the tape stops. And he was not merely mid-thought or mid-sentence at the time this happened, but mid-word. He literally stopped at the end of the <laughs> syllable when the tape ran out, gestured at the tape recorder. I then sort of opened the lid, turned the tape recorder, put it down, pressed record, and he went... And completed the sentence. <laughs> And then just, just carried on. And I was just thinking, I, I don't really need to be here. I just, I, I, could, I could go out and do some shopping. <laughs> but yeah, Dave, David's right. Generally, the less fashionable the musician, the better interview you're going to get yeah, out of them. Yeah. They don't care, basically. Charles, same question to you. I've found that, you know, people often don't, you know, don't live up to their billing. Uh, two examples of people who uh, I was told were, you know, who I've been brought up to believe would give me a hard time and absolutely didn't. John Lydon and Miles Davis, you know, both were supposed to be, like, legendary, difficult, interviewer, chewing, you know, throw the bones away so they can be delivered back to the office. What I found with both... Lydon, or uh, rotten as he was when I f uh, f um, first met him, and Miles is, if you ask them sensible questions, you get sensible answers. The only people they chew up are dickheads. I agree, if, agree with you about Lydon. He's an absolute delight. I've interviewed him a few times. Yeah. But I mean, and I agree with you about Roth. I, um, you know, I've done him. I've done him. But, you know, um, again, Miles. Oh, Miles doesn't want to talk about the past. Miles just wants to talk about the present and the future. Miles don't like white people. Miles gives white people a hard time. Fucking bollocks he does. He only gives idiots a hard time. And if it's the right question in the right context, he's happy to talk about... Gil Evans, he's happy to talk about John Coltrane. He does not have a problem with this shit. The only thing he has a problem with are people who are dickheads and who don't treat him with respect. On the greatest disappointment I've had in an interview was going to interview Gregory Isaacs, whose music I absolutely adored. And he was such a fucking prick. I got through... Um, you know, it's like... I got through half an hour's worth of questions in five minutes because I think maybe his dealer hadn't arrived or something. He was just sitting there sulking. Something was evidently going majorly wrong in his life. He did not want to be doing an interview. He just wanted to get me out of the room as fast as possible. You know, I, um, you know, I walked in a groveling fan and... Um, and left muttering imprecations out of both corners of my mouth at once. <laughs> Hello, 
This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and you're listening to a panel discussion with the music journalists Andrew Muller, Charles Shaw Murray, Jude Rogers and David Stubbs. Go to ResonanceFM.com and give them some money. I've interviewed him a couple of times, two or three times before. He'd not been too bad, a bit sort of glassy-eyed and not quite there because he's such a genius, you know, great, you know, sorry. But this time we've gone out to L.A., and the one thing is, of course, you've got this contrast. There was always this idea that somehow Stipe was the kind of friendly, engaging one who was the front man, and Peter Buck was Mr. Grumpy and Mr. Air Age and all that. I think that anybody that's interviewed R.E.M. knows that Peter Buck, you know... It's, he's honorary heavy metal, actually, because he just gives you, quote, he, you know, he talks, he, just, you know, he, he responds easily to questions. Again, you can see your paragraphs unfurling as he talks, and you think, thank you, why aren't you all like this? So I was in LA, and it was around that album Up that they did, about 1998, and the, it was for Uncut, and I think the idea of the feature was that go back and talk through, um, you know, kind of album by album, do a kind of retrospective of their career leading up to that, and Buck had been absolutely fine. And, he, and um, so I came around, and then Stipe was the last interview, and uh, top some sort of. First of all, he had to go to the toilet every five minutes for some reason. I need to pee, and he talks about Elvis for some reason. You know, I need to pee. Oh, off you go then, you know. Um, and this is like every five minutes for a start. I mean, and then so when he came back, and then I said to him, "So, do you know what this interview's all about then?" He goes, no, yeah, yeah. Bang, I have an interview again, press officer, you know, you've got one job. But um, so anyway, he said, well, expl- you know, explain, you know, that um, it was about, we're just going to look album by album, you know, like just do a kind of career perspective. You can just talk about whatever, you know, around each particular album, what circumstances were, blah, 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 just a little bit on each. You know, I'm very uncomfortable about talking about the past, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've come, I've come a long way, Michael, you <laughs> know, L.A. And then, you know, perhaps one or two of the songs were like... Then he went to this thing about songs were like clouds. Oh, God. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> not like clouds, you can't define them. Like, they're one thing and another. So just... Uh. Um, so, so we talked about how songs were like clouds. We did for a few minutes. <laughs> then we got... Talked about, well, I got him to murmur something about murmur. Then it came reckoning. And I said, you know, like, you know, start of a ten. This is like your kind of, sort of sophomore album, wasn't it? You know, that's what it's called, Reckoning. You know, it's like, this is the one where you've really got to prove yourself. But he sort of went... Because, you know, I just talked to Peter Buck and said, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right, the Reckoning, because we call like that, and of course, that's right. Then he'd sort of, like, talked entertaining about Reckoning, you know, the album. And I say the same thing to um, Stive, and he goes, oh, 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 perhaps that's what you music journalists would say, you know. <laughs> no, look, I've talked to your mate in the next room. He says that's why it's called Reckoning. Oh, and he went on like this for ages and ages. This just pathetic, passive-aggressive tribe. And then I think we eventually got on to um, the album Green. And, I don't know, I was just trying to home in on something. I think it was the song Turn You Inside Out. Um, if you remember that one at all. Turn You Inside Out, but I choose not to. And I sort of like, you know, I thought that's one of my favourite tracks on the album. I'm trying to get you to chat away about that. Mm-hmm. And um, he... Um, and so I said to him, so what, what, what's that song, you know, what, what's that all about? And um, he said, oh, I don't know, perhaps you, perhaps you could tell me. And I said, OK, well, I think it's a bit like that thing in The Simpsons where um, Mr Burns, he sees Homer um, outside of the factory and says, I could crush you like a bug. You know, it seems to be very much a kind of equivalent of that, really. And then Stipe says, I never watched The Simpsons. <laughs> I said, well, that makes you a wanker for a star. Um, and then the next thing he says, and it was full of this, like painful name drop for some reason. He's like, um, of course, uh, Matt Greeny, he, he's a great friend of mine. Um, he's a great series. Well, how would you know if you've never watched it, you'd name-dropping wanker? 
And so it proceeded. Um, to be honest, the, the biggest diva I've interviewed is not a musician. I think I've, um, I didn't interview Courtney Love, but I tried to about three times. And um, I, I w- my job wasn't to interview her, my job was to transcribe a conversation between her and Katie Price, as in Jesus. Jordan, when that Courtney happens. Love. No, it didn't happen. Ruth. When Courtney Love guest edited the film music section of The Guardian, mm. Michael Han, in his great wisdom, said I was the person to listen in on this conversation <laughs> and, try- and turn it into a workable piece. And, you know. That job's off to you. you. Think I've got to listen to this. What the hell is going to happen? You know, she was Courtney Love wanted to speak to Katie Price as this, you know, beacon of modern feminism, which, uh, as a former, you know, as a teenage Hull fan, depressed me no, no end. But it didn't happen. But I did basically what was online when I heard um, Courtney having various shouting, sweary conversations with her PA at the time, or whatever, and just hanging up. And then I'd be in uh, some. Uh, room in a record company, kind of um, wait, you know, which I travelled now and half to be in to just, you know, listening to this conversation. Anyway, it didn't happen. Andrew, before uh, now, Jude's raised Courtney Love. Before you think of somebody who's a, who's an amazing diva, tell us the best piece of advice you've ever been given as a journalist. Uh, uh, the best piece of advice I've ever been given, not just as a journalist, but probably as a as a human being ever, uh, was when I was going to Los Angeles in whenever it was to interview Courtney Love for Melody Maker. <laughs> Um, and was due to spend three or four days with her. This was when she was still... Was 91, I guess, because Hull were opening for Nirvana that week at the uh, whichever the hell venue it was in Hollywood. Uh, but Everett True, uh, bless him, uh, who was the person who hired me for Melody Maker and the journalist who I think really discovered Hull and indeed Nirvana, he kind of set this interview up, uh, but just the night before I flew to Los Angeles, he sort of shook my hand and looked me meaningfully in the eye and <laughs> said, Andrew... For the love of God, on no account give that woman your home telephone number. <laughs> <laughs> right, debris behaviour. Have you got a good example? Oh, quite a, well, God's child. Then. Have, you, have you got another example of, of somebody, somebody displaying ridiculous rock star petulance? I've tried to blank all that stuff. <laughs> um, I do, uh, you know, I do, I do remember an unfortunate encounter with Paul and Linda McCartney, which took place... Okay, what happened was I'd ha- uh, because enemy of enemy's print schedule at the time, enemy went to the princess on a Tuesday. Led Zeppelin were starting their five month or five century season at Earl's Court on the Monday. I had to go. Uh, and, okay, terrible life I used to lead. I had to go and see Led Zeppelin at, at Earl's Court, stay up all night writing the piece deliver it to somebody to put on the printer's messenger. This is, you know, this is how primitive we were. You know, it was almost having to deliver it by, smoke, by filing by smoke signals. But a piece, it had to be punched on an acoustic typewriter onto actual pieces of paper, which were then taken physically by hand from one location to another and then copied out by typesetters who were known as tappers. But anyway, had to do this had just enough time to go home, grab a bit of token sleep, quick shave, quick wash, and out to interview Paul and Linda McCartney, who were late. Um, I'm going to draw a veil over this because time is passing, but, you know, it's like, to paraphrase Frank Zappa, who incidentally Mm. was, along with... Pete Townsend and David Bowie was one of the, those people who would be guaranteed to give you stuff you could use. 
and Elton, actually, at that time. You went to interview one of those people. All you had to do was make sure the tape recorder worked. Then you were sorted. But I had to say, what can a, what can a person such as myself say to an ex-Beatle who has just made a crappy album? <laughs> particularly when you've been up all night on drugs writing a very long review of a show that took place the night before and you haven't had enough coffee. coffee. The, sandwich, the sandwiches were crap and they arrived very late, obviously stoned and didn't even pass you a joint. It was war. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I've got just one more question because I do want to have a very brief uh, question and session from the from the audience, and we are, we are going on a lot. Now, I, I've been doing Little Atoms for eight years. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, and I'm perfectly willing to admit that this is probably my fault and not theirs, but the, person, the people I've found the most difficult to interview over the years have been musicians. Hmm. And I think it's because I, I, I approach those interviews in the same way as I would with writing about a book, it's about the work, not about the person. And a lot of music journalism is about the fun and interesting things that happen on tour and what they get up to and the drugs and the sex and all of that. So I would like just a tip from everybody about how do you get musicians to write interestingly, to talk interestingly about their work? It's very, <laughs> very difficult. There are some musicians, me, you know, including you know, Pete Townsend, Lou Reed... Uh, one or two others, they consider themselves to be the only people who are capable of writing authoritatively about their work. Uh, OK, I'm going to do a very quick anecdote because we're running late and then pass, pass this parcel. Um, I was sitting in a cafe in Paris with Frank Zappa and, you know, we'd, uh, we were wrapping up an interview, he'd done a show, etc. And he said to me, listen... You've interviewed me two or three times. You've seen the band three or four times. You've read everything that's been written about us, and you've heard all our records. Let me tell you, you know nothing. <laughs> I said, Frank, that's a little harsh, you know. He said, to know anything at all about what we are doing in this project, you would have had to be around for the whole thing. And I said, but Frank, nobody's been around for the whole thing except you. He went, right. <laughs> um, the, the, the only useful tip I can pass on, and it's not a universally applicable one because it's very much a case-by-case basis and applies not just to musicians but to anybody uh, you might interview, and it's often very, very difficult, but try to think of, without veering off into this sort of gratuitous wackiness, trying to think of a question they haven't already been asked and therefore don't have a rehearsed answer to. And it's tricky, but the more... The better you know somebody's work and the better you know somebody's story, the better you are able to come up with something like that. But that, if you can get one of those in early, it does at least... It engages their brain in a way that they can't phone the interview in. It kind of makes it clear to them that they're not talking to some idiot who just got handed the press release 30 seconds beforehand and doesn't know what they're talking about. And... Yeah, and, and, and people respond to somebody who's done the work and done the research. Most people, especially if they're on a kind of promotional treadmill, will be interviewed by dozens and dozens of people, many of whom have got absolutely no idea what they're talking about at all. So a lot of people will seize on the opportunity for actually having 
a, a semi-intelligent conversation with somebody who appears to ha who appears to be reasonably well informed. But the question they haven't heard, mm. if you can come up with that. David? Well, the trouble with um, doing interviews, it's the one area, if you're a music journalist, where you can't really... You don't get to go along and see how your colleagues do it. You know, you can see how other people might arrange a piece, how they might write up a piece, and then, like, you know, the finished article. But you don't... You, you really have to find your own way. You're really kind of on your own, and you have to sort of... I mean, one of the things I used to do when I started out was, um, you know, record the interview, which, you know, quite often they'd talk like they were under police caution, it was a bit reticent or whatever, and then we'd go down the pub and then they'd really open up and I'd record that and use that instead. Then, of course, somebody pointed out that's kind of, there's on the record and off the record, that's a bit what, illegal possibly, so I just stopped doing that. Um, you know, the, the other things are just simple things. Try, my thing has always been to try and keep it conversational to the point where sometimes you're not even asking questions. You, it's as fake, it's as near, obviously it's a one-way conversation, you know, but, but keep the whole thing as kind of conversational as possible rather than it seem like they're kind of under any kind of interrogation is a second thing. Um, another one is, um, it, you know, it's, it's play, you know, it is leave a little pause and then there's a kind of battle of nerves as to who's going to fill the kind of gaping void of silence and hope that they break first. Um, and the other one is just wait for them to have been around for 10, 11 years and be a bit over the hill because they're always a lot more expansive then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with what everybody said, including Frank Zappa. Um, yeah, kind of, um, it's always good to throw in something that um, that person isn't expecting or a little fact or a little anecdote that you've read somewhere. Uh, you know, and it, sometimes it's interesting to ask, you know, say somebody who isn't necessarily seen as somebody who is involved in the process of making their music. Mm. More technical questions. For instance, I interviewed Kylie Minogue last week, who I loved when I was 10, to bits. You know, you, yeah, she's not, you know, Schumann or anything. But um, it was um, interesting to just drop a few things in to her about, I'd read an article that she'd, you know, had been ghostwritten that she'd, about, when she was going through a breast cancer about her obsession with the film Grey Gardens, and I hadn't really read about that in detail, so I could have talked about a few lines from the film that she mentioned in her article, and suddenly she was just, you know, there's still, you know, pop strong for Kylie Minogue, starts to open up in a really interesting way, and, uh, you know, it's interesting when you kind of um, talk about you know, the different sides of the pop machine and how that, how that works, and uh, I always try and think of um, starting the interview off by bringing up something that might be a point of connection, but not too cheesily. Uh, Kylie's mum's from my stig in the Welsh Valleys, and I've just I've never read about it, and you know, so I amped up the Welsh accent even more, <laughs> and um, asked her, and she'd tell me about her ninety-year-old gran, you know, who or nine, and uh, her learning Welsh when she was a child, and I thought that's more interesting than asking, you know, about you know Nick Cave or I should be so lucky again, you know, just trying to find something that's a little bit different. That you've got to think of the reader, you know, what's the reader going to respond to? That's a little bit different. And it's actually better to, to ask them. You don't ask them the same questions that people have asked them many times because you've read the answers. Mm -hmm. That's a good lesson to learn then. All right, so I'm going to wrap things up at that point then because you've all been incredibly patient. And more importantly, I need to make like Michael Stipe as well. Before I, uh... <laughs> um, so, well, I want to say thanks to Chris for doing the sound, first of all. Thanks to James and Liz of the Pod Delusion for co-curating this event with me and for taking your money at the door. Um, Buy a drink, mingle, we've still got a bit of time. Remember, this is a fundraiser, so you can buy T-shirts and badges and things over there at the, uh, at the counter on your way out, so do that as well. And, and finally, I've been Neil Denny, and if you'll give a, a round of applause to our panel, which is Charles Murray, Andrew Muller, David Stubbs, and Jude Rogers at the end. Thank you very much for coming.
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.